On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. While I'm on stage, you are all my guests because that's sort of like the unsaid agreement. So while you're my guest, if something bad happens on stage, I often think of Julia Child, you know. <laughs> oh, the chicken's <laughs> fallen on the floor. Yes. Oh, we'll pick it up and put it right back. <laughs> it's like, you know, and you know what? Everybody's with you. Right. So whatever you practice for on the engineering side that fails is all right because we have a greater purpose. The greater purpose is that we're communing together and we want this moment to be really special for all of us because otherwise, why bother to have come at all? It's not about proving anything. It's about sharing something. Cellist Yo-Yo Ma is one of the most famous musicians in the world. In this generous and intimate conversation, he shares his philosophy of curiosity about life and of performance as hospitality. In his art, Yo-Yo Ma resists fixed boundaries. He'd like to rename classical music just music, born in improvisation and traversing territory as fast and fluid as the world we inhabit. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. In addition to his numerous Grammys, Yo-Yo Ma has received the National Medal of Arts, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the 2014 Fred Rogers Legacy Award, of which he said, this is perhaps the greatest honor I've ever received. I spoke with him that year from Boston, where he lives. Let's dig in. I just, um, you know, I've been steeping. I mean, I've been listening to your music forever. And then getting ready for this, I've, I've been reading a lot of other interviews you've given and things you've written. Uh-oh. And so, yeah, I'm so just going to jump in. I'm prepared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, no. And you know where, where, you know, you, so you were born to Chinese parents in Paris, and then you straddled another world when you moved to the U.S. as a child. And, you know, what, I want to ask the question this way. You know, was there a, a religious or spiritual background to that childhood of yours? You know, however you want to define that. Well, as you can tell from the brief bio, uh, I grew up pretty confused because yeah. you know, there yeah. would be all these languages floating around, different messages floating around. And, and in terms of uh, a spiritual worldview, you know, my mother was Protestant, my father was more or less Buddhist, and and I grew up more or less Episcopalian, and, <laughs> and you know, confused. Okay, and, got it. And so, I think I've tried for all my life to make sense of things. You know, I, I remember as a five-year-old that at the age when people want to, you know, say, when I grow up, I want to do what, whatever, um, I thought that what I really wanted to do was to understand. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that, was, that was a five-year-old's wish. Yeah. But that gives you a little bit of an indication on 
where my mindset was. And I believe that was before we first came to the United States. Mm. So already I was kind of, you know, thinking, hmm, I wonder how things work in this world. Well, that's definitely... That question then, I think, echoes through the rest of your life. So we'll, we'll keep coming back to that. Um, now, you had already given up the violin by the age of four when you, picked, when you took up the cello. And, and you have said that, that coming to the cello was a compromise and an accident. I mean, can you tell that story? <laughs> okay. Um, so one day, we, um, there's a very oversized double bass that's maybe about eight feet, nine feet high in the Paris Conservatory. We went by, saw it, and of course, as a four-year-old, something huge, something big. Oh, I like it. I want to, I want to play that. So I was haranguing my parents about saying, give me this instrument. And of course, it was you know, not possible for a four-year-old. And then the compromise was the next largest instrument, which was the cello. <laughs> and that gave us Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist. <laughs> yes. I'm a firm believer of accidental meetings mm-hmm. of between, mm-hmm. you know, objects, people, uh, mm-hmm. circumstances. And uh, because I, I, so much of my life has, seems to have been orchestrated in, in that way. Right, right. There is this parallel, really not just parallel, but interconnected, interwoven fascination for you or passion alongside music, within music, with this whole adventure of what it means to be human. So I I think it's interesting that even though you were something of a prodigy that you then you didn't immediately pursue that. You went to Harvard and and studied anthropology. <laughs> I mean, do you think even at that point, you know, did these these things take up, um, you know, comparable places in you? This fascination with humanity and culture and your your life with music. Well, I think uh, I think you point to a very consistent parallel development mm-hmm. uh, skill at an instrument versus sort of just trying to figure things out, uh, trying to decipher people. I think my lifelong preoccupation in the human realm has always been who did it and why. <laughs> Say some more. <laughs> you mean just everything that comes along, That's those are the questions you want to ask? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine a, you know a seven-year-old's mind going from a Parisian landscape of not tall buildings, but very interesting rooftops, tiled rooftops. You know, sometimes with chimneys and whatever, to the landscape of rectangular buildings with an odd at that time, water tower, you know, a wooden sort of barrel at the top of it. I mean, it made me think, gee, who would have built that? You know, what happened here? Somebody did it, right? And, 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 and this would go to practically every asset of life. You know, why, why do people have different habits? Yeah. You know, yeah. why is the yeah. bread square, white, and sliced versus a baguette 
with that wonderful scent of you know baked goods and in, in the, you know in the morning where you go, you go buy a uh, patisserie you know and it's just like <laughs> you, yeah. you you want to grab the closest loaf of bread or croissant in, in in your hand and and then to obviously to language and to behavior to uh, to all kinds of of things that that I was receiving unconsciously but probably early on starting to to at least pose the question, why? How come? So what you just described about experiencing this spectrum of you know, how humanity expresses itself in different cultures with all these things, architecture, food, um, and where you are you know, a master um, is this realm of music. And what, the way you just talked about that actually helps me think about my sense that you are steeped in music as an entry point to all that. I don't even want to use the word diversity because it's just almost, you know, it's an overused word and it's almost too cold for what we're talking about, right? All that richness, all that variety. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that right? Does, I mean, and, and, and... Absolutely. I think um, Pablo Casals used to talk about, you know, the great uh, uh, cellist from Spain, from Catalan, uh, talked about infinite variety. Yeah, right. And and I think that's what I seek in the mind's eye. You know, you look at the, to quote Carl Sagan, the billions and billions of stars out there. Um, and, it, you know, what stirs the imagination of, of, of a young child? You look at the sky and you start wondering, right. where are we? You know, how do we fit into this vast... Universe and to Casal saying that within the notes that he plays, he's looking for infinite variety. Mm. To Isaac Stern saying, the music happens between the notes. <sighs> okay, well, what then do you mean when you say music happens between the notes? Well, how do you get from A to B? Is it a smooth transfer? It's automatic. It feels easy. You glide into the next note. Or you have to reach to get to the... You have to physically or mentally or effortfully reach to go from one note to another. Could the next note be part of the first note? Or could the next note be a different universe? You know, have Mm -hmm. you just crossed into some amazing boundary and suddenly the second note is a revelation? So it's about merging different aspects of one realm, which in the realm of playing an instrument is pure engineering. Right. But the mental process, the emotional process, the psychic investment in trying to make something easy, infinitely hard. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with the singular cellist and citizen artist, Yo-Yo Ma. We're 
were there kind of pieces of music or experiences of working with other musicians or particular concerts? Like, there, have there been cathartic moments where you, where you discovered this or started to be able to articulate it, or even something going on now? I'm just, I'm just wondering if you could embed that in a piece of music or a story. Sure. Um, well, I'll give you two. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the composers that wrote for cello alone, Bach, wrote six of these wonderful suites. Yes. And they're different movements. And I have a moment of going between the moment, the end of a movement, to the beginning of the next movement. So actually not necessarily coded or written in by the composer. They're just separate movements that I remember often playing, uh, loving the connection between the end of the Saraband of the first, the G major suite, going into the minuet, then the next movement. Because there was something, uh, a Saraband is like a slow dance, and it goes into a minuet, which is a slightly more lively dance. And there's something about the incredible restfulness of the way the first movement ends. And suddenly, the sunlight comes in. There's a moment where you you can go into nature and always at any moment and figure out some parallel to what is happening in a sound-centric world. And that moment was amazing for me. You know, I wouldn't want to end the day playing just the end of one movement without also including the other. And so there was, you know, there was a connective thing. So that's an early age memory. I think, you know, you like to say that sound can be visual. Well, it's telling stories, giving narrative, giving substance or meaning to something that's coded that I think gets us to want to be involved in a specific world Hmm. that one is describing. So you play and celebrate and encourage many, many kinds and forms and genres of music, but this example is, is classical music. And I did want to speak to you about, you know, classical music in the modern world, in a modern sensibility. I mean, I wonder if you would say something about how classical music distinctively works for us and with us. I mean, it seems to me that what you're just describing there is this fullness and drama and sweep that a classical piece is capable of. And that's quite unusual, even compared to other kinds of complex music. But I don't, I don't know if that generalization works. Um, I don't know either, because I both like to make sweeping generalizations, mm-hmm. and I also don't like to make sweeping generalizations. Yeah, I know, me too. So I'm always conflicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that sense. And I think I would first of all say that the idea of classical music is kind of the definition of it bears reexamination that in okay. some ways it's a false category. It's a it's certainly a 
commercial category because you can then, <laughs> you know, with that category, you can go into a certain world and assume that there's a certain number of things that are going to be there. Yeah. Some people would say, well, classical music is really, you know, its roots are church music, court music, yes. and popular music. Yes. So they're all mixed in. So the sacred and secular definitely are part of it. And the sacred, secular, and and certainly the folk elements in Haydn and Mozart and Brahms, you know, the Roma people, it's all over the place. Yeah, but you're right. Uh, that's not something um, that's consciously pointed at very often or named. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by large generalizations. Yeah. There's that great famous New Yorker cartoon that says, you know, for for New York-centric people, it's Manhattan, there's a Hudson River, there's New Jersey, then there's the West Coast. <laughs> and then there's, right. there's Asia. So that's, it's like you get to a larger and larger way of collecting an immense amount of information into one word. And obviously, we know it's not true, not quite true, but it serves a purpose. Even thinking about musical as geographies rather than... Um you know, t- a timescape, right? Which is classical music. You're right. It sets it in time and makes it sound like something that once was. Right. It's, oh, yes, it's dead white European music. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, well, what about the classical great composers that came to not just North America, but to South America that took in all the influences of, of indigenous people especially in places like Brazil, the African traditions, mm-hmm. and then created a different sound, a different thing that, that we, we all treasure. And So who would you think of in that category? Just give me an example that people might know. Well, uh, well okay, uh, uh, let me use Argentina f- okay. first, uh, the music of Astor Piazzolla. Uh, Piazzolla, tango, hmm. nuevo tango. You know, so here's a man who was born in Buenos Aires. His father was a barber. He came to New York for better life when he was a teenager. And he heard, went in those days to uh, jazz clubs in, in Harlem, loved the music. Then they had to move back because they couldn't make a go of it. Later on, he went to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger, one of the greatest teachers of music ever, who influenced... Stravinsky, Copeland, and tons of musicians from everywhere. And she looked at his work and said, oh, you know, not bad. It's a good, you know, you're trying to sound like Bartok and it looks pretty good. Let me see some other stuff that you've written. And he shows her his tango-influenced music. And she said, wow, you know, the other stuff is okay. But this stuff... You should really continue because that is just, you know, outrageously fantastic. And so he went and then continued to write in that style. So he now has jazz in his background. He's had the sort of the contemporary classical skill sets in his background. He has tango music in his background. 
Piazzolla to this day is claimed by everybody. Mm. He's claimed by world music, classical musicians, jazz musicians. You know, he's one of us because he's put in and people recognize in, in his music their own DNA in it. Hmm. So if you uh, could replace the words classical music with another phrase uh, or some other words, what would they be? I would say that um, most people who've tried, they just say music. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> and <laughs> Music of our world. Uh-huh. Uh, and obviously classical music, which had roots in improvisation. Bach, Mozart, Beethoven were some of the greatest improvisers of their time. Mm. And in fact, were renowned for what they were able to do, but then also wrote things down. We know their work because there were no recordings at the time of the music that they wrote down. Mm. So, you know, I would have a template for just good musicians as people who who know something <laughs> good very, music. very... Yeah, good yeah. music. Look, or any type of music can be part of good music in the sense that... But I'm not even saying good music. I'm mm. saying good musicians... Yeah, right. ...would be able to, you know, to compose, mm-hmm. to, to improvise, to be virtuosic in what they do, and can easily absorb other influences and make it organically their own so that, you know, new influences are embedded. So there's the process of constant growth. And then finally, uh, the last quality would be the musician that actually is able to transfer, to inject all of their knowledge and give it to somebody else so that they can actually look at the world and figure it out for themselves Mm. without the, the first musician being there. So it's a process of birth. It's a process of constant cultural rebirth. a short break, more conversation with Yo-Yo Ma. Subscribe to On Being on Apple Podcasts to listen again and discover produced and unedited versions of everything we make. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a spacious conversation with one of our greatest musicians, the cellist Yo-Yo Ma, We're exploring his philosophy of life and of performance. He's described himself as a forensic musicologist, dedicated to decoding the music of creators who are no longer with us. But Yo-Yo Ma also makes music with a vast range of living artists, from Bobby McFerrin to the Kalahari Bushmen. 
His Silk Road project, named after the ancient trading route that joined the Mediterranean and the Pacific, knits far-flung contemporary worlds together by way of musical encounter and understanding. His Silk Road ensemble involves musicians from this array of cultures. So it seems to me also that even as you... As you know, as you described, you've sometimes spoken of a forensic musicology that you know you're asking, <laughs> oh. who did this and why. It seems to me you're also doing that all the time in your life of music with musical creators who are with us, <laughs> playing music, making music with so many others. And um, when somebody, if somebody sees you on stage, and even if you're together with someone else, it, you know this other person is very skilled and. There's a feeling of, you know, mastery, perfection or, you know, but I think that the state you're in and the experience you're having and that you're making is much more vulnerable than than an audience might realize. Yes. A lot of artists will say, oh, you know, I have to make myself so vulnerable. And that is absolutely true. If you're well defended, you know. I'm going to show you how strong I am, mm-hmm. then that precludes the idea of saying, actually, I'm very weak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because weakness can be a strength as a form of expression. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you only show strength, you're showing a one dimensional aspect of something that you're trying to describe. If you only show weakness, obviously one thing, but if you show both yeah. and you show the variety in between, you're describing a multi-dimensional world, yeah. right? Which is what we are, I guess. Yeah. So I think another state that I'm fond of describing is, um, you know, when I come to Minneapolis, I'm a guest in your town. But when I'm on stage, all of you that are in the hall are my guests. Mm. So, you know, I'm the host of a wonderful party, you're all my guests. Because I have the floor. While I'm on stage, you are all my guests because that's sort of like the unsaid agreement. So while you're my guest, if something bad happens on stage, I often think of Julia Child, you know. Oh, the chicken's <laughs> fallen on the floor. Yes. Oh, we'll pick it up and put it right back. <laughs> it's like, you know, and and you know what? Everybody's with you. Right. Because, and even if nobody's going to touch the chicken, they're not going to let that moment spoil their evening. Mm. They'll remember, oh, yes, you know. Oh, oh that's so great. That's that. such a great image for life. Isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, oh, well, this happened, yeah. you know, boom. But actually, that's not why we're here, to watch the bad things that happen. So whatever you practice for on the engineering side that fails is all right because we have a greater purpose. The greater purpose mm. is that we're communing together and we want this moment to be really special for all of us because otherwise, why bother to have come at all? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's not about how many people are in the hall. It's not about proving anything. No. It's about sharing something. It's about being whole together too, isn't it? Which includes yeah. There's all something those things that's that so could go com- wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh-huh. It's so and and you know, rewind to September eleventh, on the morning of September eleventh, I was in Denver. Uh, at nine o'clock my wife calls me and says, you know, turn on the television, mm-hmm. something bad is happening. 
turn on the television. I'm supposed to go to Colorado Springs on the 11th and to Denver to play another concert on the 12th and the 13th in Phoenix, Arizona. Three different orchestras. And so in the wake of this, you know, horrific thing, every orchestra had to decide, do we cancel or do we play? Hmm. And what every orchestra decided was, we're going to play. We may change the program a little. We're going to actually be together and have a moment of literally of being together. And music will be the, the way that we will come together because we're asserting ourselves as a community, as a people, as a city, as whatever, and we need to be together. So to this day, yeah. now this is now how many, 12 years uh, later, when, if I go back to any of those places, not a single person does not remember vividly what that evening meant, you know. And, you know, I think that's a wonderful image for some language you use of being a citizen artist and that um, this insistence that this must be at the table, arts and music, as we define ourselves culturally and, and weighted as defining alongside politics and economics and the things we discuss in a more, that we sometimes seem to take more seriously. Well, I think, you know, it depends how much room we have for what. And, and the thing is, you know, again, what is it and why? <laughs> what are we doing here? Yeah. What, who are we? And I often ask musicians, well, do you think of yourselves as, you know, the instrument that you play as, as your identity? Or do you think of yourself as a musician? Or do you think of yourself as a human being? And what is the ratio between the three? I think that, you know, the citizen part is somewhere towards the, the human part because we're yeah. looking at you know, how we fit in within society. And if we look at our constitution, we have an ideal of what our nation could and should be like. So how do we participate? I know I, for one, often feel frustrated to say, you know, there's so many things that are happening and I have nothing to do with it. Yeah. I'm not connected to it. So therefore, I can't care about it because it's just a waste of time and energy. Uh, because it's all beyond me. Now, that's kind of like giving up. And I it think that's an experience so many people have, so many people yeah. who do different things in different corners. But ultimately, if we are the democracy that we claim to be, it does require full participation. Hmm. You know, and, and that's, that's the anomaly that, that I'm sort of trying to wrestle with in myself too you know as a musician i'm thinking okay well what what in the world can i do you know essentially it's like what my wife always says to me don't just make lists just ask you know what can i do to help mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think if we ask if we even start to look you will find lots and lots of needs. Yeah, I, I you know, love this language of Rilke about living the questions, and I think there is something powerful about posing the question. You can't live into it unless you ask it. Right, but once you ask it, mm -hmm. you see, you already put yourself in a position 
of slight vulnerability because you don't know the answer. Yeah. And I think that by doing that, you can actually begin to see where the solutions may lie. At least you start to open yourself to someone else who might propose yes. a solution that start to lead us in a certain position. And I think that's where the basis of, of you know, a cultural citizen or citizen musician comes in because I think that, uh, you know, as musicians, music actually very easily crosses spaces. Yeah. You know, you yeah. go from people's earbuds into concert halls, into living rooms, into cars, into what. So you, you can, it can exist uh, across a lot of different physical spaces and geographical spaces. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with cellist and citizen artist Yo-Yo Ma. I'm curious about your relationship with your cello, or your cellos. You probably have. Do you have more than one, or do you have one? Uh, yeah, I play on a number of instruments. Okay. Some, two of them are old, and, and several of them are new. I mean, I'm wondering, is it like a part of your body? Is it like a friend? Is it like a family member? Can you talk about, about that? Um, as usual, I feel two ways about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See how conflicted I am. You know? It's a wonder I can get up in the morning. <laughs> Uh, it's, should I get up? Why should I get up? <laughs> Who am I that thinks I should get up? <laughs> you know, it gets very confusing. Uh, I love the instruments I play, but I also like to be separate from them. And so I think the 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 image I have of the four strings of the instrument and the bow I use is that the bow, which draws out sound, are the lungs. Mm-hmm. And the strings that are on the instrument are the vocal cords. So I think of instruments as sort of the extension of the lungs and the vocal cords. Mm-hmm. And the instruments are great pieces of, in a way, of sculptural architecture, you know, designed to give life to sound and beauty and all, all of those aspects and you know I can talk a lot about sort of you know the golden periods of certain instrument making and why it became that way whatever but f- for now it's really these are relationships with separate instruments and each of them has a different quality uh, the Stradivarius I play on has is more of a tenor instrument meaning that the the core sort of sound that, you know, the greatest string might be the top string. Uh, a Montagnana, a Venetian instrument I play on, may have as its core the lowest string. Mm. So it becomes more like a bass baritone. And so there are differences the way the differences in 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 wines, in in all kinds of... In, in voices, uh, in hum, human voices also. In human voices, mm-hmm. right. And then you try and balance out what needs to be in another space, which is uh, 
if it's a, a concert hall that you're playing in, I think of each concert hall as a different instrument because each concert mm. hall has separate qualities. You know, so obviously in a in a theater, it has a dry acoustic because you really want to hear words, but in in a place like uh, Orchestra Hall mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, uh, it is reverberant because it wants to blend the sounds of various instruments. And so so it has a longer reverb, hmm. you know, two seconds or something. So, And then there are multi-purpose halls that are configured for whatever the needs may be. If it's a conference, obviously on the drier side, if it's, you know, so so... I think knowing the space that you're in is really important. I'm not saying that you match the instrument to each hall, but that you just want to know the characteristics so you can start to work in a way that works for the listener. So you're never because even just working with the instrument. You're working with the instrument and the environment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the environment. And as I love to say to people that want to listen to me, is that if you're going to perform someplace... Please don't fall in love with what you've constructed. It's like in the Marines, don't fall in love with your plan Mm. because the plan's always going to change. And you need to make sure that the audience is the most important person in the room. Because if you want to make something that's, you know, that's memorable for somebody else, as well as for yourself, the purpose of doing live music is that it's like a communal witnessing of something. Hmm. So, you know, well, somebody said to me, um, we'd seen you perform up really close. I think maybe when you, it's one of my producers, I think maybe it's when you, you did a, a performance at NPR. Um, uh-huh. She said in a way that she had never seen before or since, she said that you radiated joy. And I'm curious about, and I, I've seen that for, at, at a little more of a distance in, in your performances, and I wonder if, um, is that something you're conscious of? Is it something that developed over time, uh, has developed over time? Well, I think it, it has some connection to the hosting and guest mm-hmm. thing. Imagine being a host of a party and, and walking out and saying, oh, so you're here. Right. But is this a presence that you that you grew into, that you settled into? Um, possibly. I mean, I, I don't have that good a memory for yeah. a state of mind of, you know, from 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So I, I think that, uh, you know, it's that part of that host thing. Yeah. Uh, you can't be a pessimist uh, Yes, on, but you can't. You, you you don't have to be joyful, right? And I don't think that's something either that you can manufacture. Um, you know, you can you be can gracious fi- without being joyful. <laughs> but true, there's some quality to your presence in when you're playing your music. Maybe all the time. Well, maybe the joyfulness could be the hope of joy. Hmm. You know, it doesn't. The intention. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I think you know. I, I often say optimism is a philosophy, mm. unless you're obviously you know twenty four seven optimistic. <laughs> well, then it could be a, a blessing and a curse. But you're, but, yeah, right. <laughs> Your dog died. Oh, really? How wonderful! <laughs> <laughs> but I think I hear you saying you choose joy. I think so. Well, certainly in performing, 
I think that is that is a choice. Because, you know, it really doesn't matter what where I am in life, but I truly am happy and grateful that people have taken the time to show up. Yeah. So if I'm a host, I'm you know, yeah. I'm entertaining guests and you know, I'm not saying that that elevates or cheapens it, but but in the tradition that that we're talking about, you know, and with the example of Nadia Boulanger saying that um, about the musician that, that you 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 are a priest. Yeah, you are entering into a priesthood. You serve that. You're looking for an elevated sense of of being in existence, at least that the music should somehow make us better. Yeah. Now, of course, we live in the 21st century, and I'm not sure whether something like that works. Uh, I would like to think that that's certainly part of what we try to do. Well, you know, there's. I, I, I looked back, um, getting ready to interview you, at that appearance you made on in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh. Back in the 20th century. I love Mr. Yeah, <laughs> I know you do. It was clear that you do. And I was so struck. Now, I think I was watching, I don't know where this came from, YouTube or something, but I didn't hear you answer this question. But to, 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 to the point you just said about the great, you know, potentially the great responsibility, the priesthood of being a musician, you know, he, he ended by saying, do you know what a present that is when you play something for somebody? It's just like giving them a present. That's so typical of Mr. Rogers, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking of which, you know, he... So we think of him as, you know, the children's program that he created for so many decades. And and what's funny is Mr. Rogers lives on. Yes. I mean, there's so many legions of people that, uh, that grew up with him and, and they're still, in a way, growing up with him. And... and he, of course, was uh, a minister. And, and I forgot that. Were, I had forgotten yeah. that. And he, you know, the children of the show in the neighborhood mm-hmm. are his ministry. And what a beautiful thing that is. So I, to this day, when someone says, you know, what are you most proud of to have accomplished? You know, I am so proud to have been part of that. It's a wonderful image also of, you know, as you say, he was also an entertainer for tax purposes, probably. But entertainment is a kind of gift economy. Um, a gift economy. I like that. Yeah. Can I borrow that? Yes, you um, can absolutely borrow it. Relational, <laughs> not transactional. Said, yes, exactly. Yeah, we just, we just have a few minutes, but I, I think maybe where I'll end is uh, I'm collecting, um, you know, definitions of beauty. I feel like beauty is... Uh, well, you know, so, so I'll give you some that I love. You know, in Islam, beauty is a core moral value. Um, you know, scientists and mathematicians, and you've named a few, you know, talk about, you know, if an equation is not elegant and beautiful, it's probably not true. There's this equation of beauty with truth. The, uh, the philosopher and poet John O'Donohue said, beauty is that in the presence of which we feel more alive. I wonder, I mean, beauty is a word you've used in this conversation. You use it a lot. Obviously, it's just there in what you do, whether you're talking about it or not. I wonder if you'd talk to me about the meaning of beauty for you or the power of beauty in the world. 
Wow. Uh, what a simple question. I know. <laughs> um, I think I can't say the word beauty without also equating it with the word transcendence. Mm. Because it seems like there's so many different things that are beautiful to so many different people. But I think beauty is often an encapsulization of a lot of different things in a certain moment, a frame. Let's say it could be yeah. you know, music, it could be uh, a poem, it could be an event, it could be in nature, and often, possibly most often in nature. But when that encapsulated form is received, there's a moment of reception and cognition of the thing that is some ways startling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the moment you solve an equation, you know, the moment that something is revealed in either in your own head or physically, materially revealed, when that moment happens, when in the Sistine Chapel, when, you know, uh, when you see the, the finger, you know, Adam yeah. just about to die. There's that moment where something is being transferred. I think even when we observe nature, so if we are part of nature and we observe nature, but we're part of the human realm, and there's that moment which essentially there's a transfer of life. Hmm. So even if you think, you know, nature is inanimate and therefore, but the, but the beauty of nature, but it's, it's the human cognition of that vastness, the awe and the wonder, uh, something that's in a way bigger than yourself. That phrase, it's a transfer of life, I think is also a wonderful way to talk about music, about what happens when you, in the experience of music, of playing it, yeah. making it or receiving it. Well, I think I think that's that's true. You know, in the in the Silkwood Ensemble, I'm fond of of being able to quote a number of incidents where uh, that you know when the uh, Ko Mizaki, the the shakuhachi player, which is a bamboo flute, when he plays a piece of music that was written after, let's say, I think the Tokyo Fire of 1927, and he plays this sort of thing over and over again, and it's kind of it's certainly deeply spiritual and mournful. I've had more people come to me and say, you know, this is the most extraordinary thing I've heard. Christina Pato is a Galician bagpiper, uh, plays a gaita, and she and Wutong come across the stage uh, at one another, or, or or with Ko, you know, so a bagpiper and a shakuhachi, and they walk across the stage, and, you know, that to me, you know, I get the goosebumps of seeing this, you know, incredibly uh, wonderful, but very powerful and penetrating instrument. I get a 
time, space, geography crossing moment that cognitively makes me aware of the vastness of what basically humans all over the world have been trying to express for millennia. have for ages been trying to code the awesomeness of the infinite variety of <laughs> possibilities are, of variety. creation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, like, you know, with the Silk Ensemble, it's really that kind of thing where we're trying to join people together in what might be an unusual way, but in fact has become more and more the usual, which elicits sometimes in people you can turn fear into joy mm. when you receive something that's living that goes inside you because it becomes your own Yo-Yo Ma's newest album is Brahms, the Piano Trios, with Emmanuel Axe and Leonidas Cavacos. His most recent release with the Silk Road Ensemble is featured on the soundtrack to Ken Burns and Len Novick's documentary, The Vietnam War. He's received over a dozen Grammy Awards, as well as the National Medal of Arts, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the 2014 Fred Rogers Legacy Award. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Casper Tech Heil, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Damon Lee, and Jeffrey Basoy. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.